0: This is Antirid of the Ninja Pat Pigeons, and you're listening to Big Red Potion.
1: Brought to you by GamerNode and the Unified Gamers Network, you're listening to Big Red Potion, the podcast now available with twin sticks. I'm your uncontainable host, Sinan and... Today, I'm joined by Portland's freelancer extraordinaire, the person whom we like to call Jeffrey Matleff.
2: Hi, guys.
1: How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing well. Okay, and I am also joined by a special guest, well, special guest that's present currently for the episode dot 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 but yes he is one of the hosts of the always sparkling in retrospect podcast and he's also a bit handy with the writing video logging and as we're going to hear today the interviewing as well he is of course the sexist which we like to call peter willington hello hello thank you so much for coming on today's show peter it's an absolute pleasure it really is Ah, well the pleasure is all ours i'm sure Okay, so this is episode 46, and the topic for the show is Why do good games get overlooked? And um, maybe you could imagine the word good with apostrophe marks around it or in italics. You, You get the gist. So yeah, we're going to discuss how the games press handles and presents some of the smaller, less popular games, dig a bit deeper into the subcultures and patterns which underline the championing of such interactive underdogs. Before all that, though, we're going to kick off the show in a rather unusual fashion. What you're about to hear is an interview Peter very generously recorded only a few hours ago just for the show with the head honcho of reviews over at Destroctoid, the one and only Mr. Jim Sterling. Now, anyone who's followed Jim's work will, I think, agree that he's undoubtedly one of the most controversial critics in the Games Press. Uh, his, rev- you know, We've talked about his reviews a lot on the show before, they're often at odds with the uh, I guess the censors, the opinion of the census. Would you, would you guys say that's fair? Yeah,
3: I think that's fair.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd say so. Yeah, I mean, last year in particular, when he handed out a, a ten out of ten to Deadly Premonition shortly after IGN had given it a two, and in fact, that's one of the games that which we, we talked about uh, in our last show, and uh, had such a contrasting opinions about it. So, on that note, um, we're, we're going to go ahead with this interview. Peter uh, talks to Jim in it about. What makes him champion games like Deadly Premonition, uh, and if it, uh, Jim thinks that the games press is geared too heavily into rejecting games like it, so here we go, Mr. Peter Wellington interviewing Mr. Jim Sterling.
0: user editor, struggle.com, and freelance, not games journalists, <laughs> typically around the internet.
3: Cool. Um, excellent. So um, my first question for you is, what do you feel it is that leads to a game becoming obscure or niche or overlooked amongst games press or by gamers?
0: Well, there's a couple of reasons, but I think that obviously the, the primary one is the size of the studio. And the publisher uh, putting the game out there i mean there's no risk of bungie or infinity World putting out a game that nobody's going to hear about um whereas if you if you're a smaller studio like uh let's say um, or a publisher like axis games or there's any number of obscure japanese publishers out there um even Mistwalker walker at, at times have, have had trouble and they're one of the higher up guys um Raven Software I think put out a lot of good stuff, but they've always been this kind of middle shelf developer, so so people don't really pay much attention to them. Mm. Um, so I think that I mean that really is it. It's it's the same as any other industry. Um, no one's gonna pay as much attention to some um, you know, stand up comedian who has been he may have been working for thirty years in the business, um, just doing little clubs, um, but everyone knows who Ricky Gervais is. Um, and obviously they're going to pay more attention to him because everybody knows who he is and, and what he's doing, so they care about him. They're not going to care about some smaller guy, um, such as, as, as Ray Peacock or whoever, um, one of these really good uh, stand-up comics who are fantastic but just aren't, you know, they haven't had the same luck to be as big as, as someone like Gervais, who is, you know, very good, um, just like Bunjuri and Vinci would very good at what they do. It's just they're in a... a, a Far more fortuitous circumstance. Um, I okay. think in any industry, some some people are going to be big, some people are going to be small.
3: Okay. Um, so what is it? Um, so what is it about a, a specific game that makes you personally want to champion it and want to tell other people about it? Is there anything quantifiable, or is it just a case of you know that looks personally interesting to you?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's hard to tell because um, a lot of the things that, that perk my interest are so. Varied and different. Um, usually, if it's an interesting concept, um, like a unique setting we haven't seen in a game before, or a really good art style, they, they're typically the two things that really speak to me, as is um, just something that looks funny. Um, I mean, I mentioned comedy earlier. I'm a big fan of, of comedy, so if I see a, a funny, endearing game of that nature, such as Half Bricks Rascals, um, I, that game first caught my eye when it was originally announced. No one else seemed to really care. Um, A lot of people talk about Halfbrick now that they've had a lot of success with games like Fruit Ninja on the iPhone. Um, And I'm very proud of the fact that I I was friends with those guys when their Twitter account had 300 followers. And now Steve Ballmer is uh, name-checking them during Microsoft press conferences. Um, So that's a good sort of show of, of how these small studios can get big. Um, so it's always worth, I think, finding these smaller studios and, and getting friend, you know, getting friendly with them, helping them out, um, especially if they they explode, because, you know, they'll remember you once they become big. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Rascals, I was attracted to because of its uh, cartoony, bold art style. Uh, Deadly Premonition, I was attracted to because it looked ridiculous. <laughs> um what else? Recently is um, a, a new game that's popped up that's really caught my eyes, Awakened, by Phosphor Studios. Um, and it's just this this awesome idea of this open-world superhero game, but it's fully customizable and, and very dark and grounded as opposed to over the top. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a, a unique concept and an interesting art style will always catch my eye.
3: Okay, so uh, you were talking about how you clearly feel like it's important for yourself to talk about, to talk about these smaller titles. Do you feel it's, do you feel it's important for, um, uh, can I use the word critic? Is that right, all right around you? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, do you feel it's important for um, critics in general to actively seek out interesting and unique titles or is their responsibility to write to what they know their audience wants?
0: Um, but I've always said the primary responsibility of a um, of a writer is obviously to write for their readers and not for anybody else. Um, I take that to mean personally, um, to include picking up on games they might not have heard about. If I think something interests me, then I assume it's going to interest my readers. Because if they like reading my stuff, they must think similarly to me. So if I see something like Awakened and I say, that looks really interesting... I'm sure there's going to be loads of other people who are interested as well, so I'll write that up. doesn't always work. I can't get anyone interested in uh, Dynasty Warriors, for example. <laughs> um, you know, I'm on my own there. But, you know, I write that to just entertain myself, and then I think people are entertained by the content. Um, I don't think we have a, 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 like collectively a responsibility to um, talk about these smaller games, but I do take it on as... as as a personal civic duty, um, I wouldn't demand anybody else do it, but I, I personally think I'm in a nice position with a big audience, and the least I could do is, is help out these these smaller games that look interesting, but nobody's talking about.
3: So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you're in a position of, um, you know, you do have a, you know, a large audience that you can talk about what interests you too. Um, it seems uh, from... From my end, at least, it seems a little bit odd that the smaller sort of blogs um, and, uh, and and sites tend to not um, they tend to go for content that is you know the big uh, you know the big PlayStation news or the the 360 news that kind of stuff rather than focus on you know smaller indie you know indie titles that kind of thing. Do you feel that there's perhaps a, a problem with the way that blogs build themselves up that potentially? damages the relationship between smaller game developers and smaller um, blogs Do you, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is you know s- aggregate you know news aggregators that sort of thing if you're gonna get a you know if you're gonna get a thousand degrees on n4g you need to be talking about how you know the best the top 10 uh, boobs in kill zone 3 but talking about a smaller title um, you know like deadly premonition you um, uh, you know, um, before you sort of championed it, that wouldn't particularly build up much traffic and uh, and a lot uh, a lot of you know tension and pull. So, do you feel that that perhaps the way that we get uh, get more re- readers is uh, a problem for the smaller games? I, I suppose that's an incredibly long winded way that I've
1: just gone around <laughs> the <that> question. Uh,
3: <laughs> but yeah, it basically, is trying to is trying to become a bigger site or a, a, a you know a more widely known writer, hampering uh, smaller titles.
0: Yeah, um, potentially. Um, I, obviously, I don't blame a, a smaller blog for, for just picking up on you know anything to do with Gran Turismo Five because that's mm. going to get on the front page of N4G no matter what. Um, is it detrimental? Um, again, I think it's true of any industry, um, any small interesting, independent project is always going to suffer when Paris Hilton opens her legs getting out of the car. <laughs> it's it's just the way it works. The audience want to hear about the big things, the big names, um, the big exclusive video games, and they don't really care about something like um, the Cursed Crusade or something of that nature, unless it becomes a real cult hit. And, and that takes quite a bit of work and effort on the part of... Um, of writers and gamers themselves. Um, word of mouth is an incredibly powerful thing, and I think that was why Deadly Premonition became such a huge hit. Um, and Ignition themselves have, have kind of acknowledged that it was coverage from Destructoid and Giant Bomb and these these other places, uh, NeoGAF. Just these guys just talking about Deadly Premonition is, is what got it where it is. So if no one's talking about a game, obviously that's going to be detrimental. Um, but I also think, at least where I am, um, I can afford to talk about these games more, um, because I do have a large audience, uh, very gratefully, um, and I also talk about the big stuff. I think there's there's a balance to be found, and maybe it only comes with, with being in a position where you've already got a large audience, so you can afford to um, talk about these smaller uh, stories, as well as the big stuff, um, but I don't think it would harm any any blogger, whether they're big or small, to just, if they see a game that interests them that no one else is talking about, get in there. Mm. Um, I make that part of my job, is to find games that no one else is talking about and ask why no one's talking about it and, and just post that up. Um, and you can do that while also talking about, you know, PSP2 announcements and 3DS prices and all this. It really takes little effort to just just shine a light on some of these other games and it, and it helps and it can turn these small games into massive games. Um, I made a game with zombies in it, um, again the aforementioned Deadly Premonition, Demon's Souls these games nobody talked about um, before they released and then people played them people talked about them, they became massive so just, I think every little helps um, it certainly doesn't hurt to talk about these things, no matter what, what size of a blog you are and I don't know whether it's detrimental, I don't know whether it it really hurts um, because sometimes you can talk about a game as much as you want and it won 't sell I mean, Kami is a, is a fantastic example of that um, but it certainly doesn't you know it it helps to talk I think and it it, it certainly doesn 't hurt anybody to find a nice game and, and chat about it
3: okay um finally um, is there a, a particular game, one particular game you feel you never got the attention deser- it, that it deserved, and you feel you never got around to writing about it at the time. For example, you know, um, you weren't reviews editor of Destructoid at the time. That sort of thing. Is there one clear cut choice game that you feel that the listeners of the show should go back and check out because it is so um, it did go so low under the radar?
0: I think um, room Man is possibly the the one game I really resent not having the chance to have reviewed because that was long before I was uh, that was before I was professionally writing about games. Um, it was a, a music game by Cody on the PlayStation Two. Very hard to get hold of now. Um, it, as, as far as I can remember, it is an expensive game if you find it now. Even the PSP version that they put out, um, it's become something of a cult. It these days but the, I mean the guys at said to me when I pestered them about him, the PSN release they said everybody loves that game but nobody played it um, which is a shame um, that is one of the few games I can think of off the top of my head that I would have easily given a 10 out of 10 to because I don't think there's anything wrong with it um, so a weird um, brilliant um, rhythm game with excellent music and yeah didn't sell at all as far as I know which is a real shame. I think that that, that would have benefited from, from an age like today. Um, I mean, the internet was around during the, the last generation, but it, the online gaming community, as it's called, wasn't quite as echoey as it is now. I think if we'd have had um, YouTube as prevalent back then as it is now, we can upload videos of, of, of Gitteroo Man um, back when it was on, on sale, then... Yeah, we, we may have had another deadly revolution.
1: So that was an excellent interview, Peter. Well done.
3: Thank you. That's no, it's, it's it was a pleasure talking to him, and um, it was uh, yeah, he had some very interesting things to say about uh, about game reviews. So
1: absolutely. Um, And thank you so much for letting us feature on the show. Uh, No problem. So let's let's talk about reviewers like Jim Sterling whose opinions tend, and I I, I say tend, but really I'm not entirely sure it's as frequent as we we paint it to be, but uh, let's say tend to swing against popular opinion. I'm not sure if there are any personalities you guys would say fit the profile. Um, I tend to think of a few friends of the show, like Brad Galloway over at Game Critics, he's often uh, got a controversial opinion or two, um, or a very own Eddie Inzato of GamerNode, uh, Jeff actually as well. You, you tend to to go against the popular opinion a few times. Um, Tom Chick of, of Fidget, uh, and I, I guess even you could, you could argue. Not sure if it's entirely valid now, but Edge, some you could argue, tend to throw up a few surprising, surprising reviews. Are there any uh, people in the games press like like Jim who come to mind? Uh, Peter and Jeff.
2: You named a lot of
1: them. <laughs> I've got a comprehensive list going.
2: <laughs> I'm sure they will come to me as soon as we're done discussing this. <laughs> um, I think.
3: I think. Um, yeah, I, I'm so pleased oh. you brought up Edge. Actually, um, Edge are, uh, or at least they very much used to be, a magazine that really did create um, the kind of reviews that kind of were either they were never quite on the button with popular culture. They were either a little bit more positive or a little bit more negative. They never tended to be, they never, they never really tended to sway, um, particularly negatively, I would say. Um, but up until about, I would say about nine months ago, 12 months ago, I think edge had some really interesting, um, opinions, um, and, uh, outlooks, I would say on video games that, that didn't really mirror popular consensus. Um, I, and I think that edge was i think that's part of the reason that edge got got its popularity um the fact that when you you know when you picked up a copy it was it was you picked up edge for its for its opinions and for its writers you didn't pick it up for um you know the latest news piece or anything like that um so i'm glad you picked i'm glad you picked those guys up but other people um i mean justin McElroy i suppose um he's pretty good at um he he's one of the those kind of critics that I that I love to uh, almost almost love to hate. I guess hate is a bit too much of, <laughs> a bit too much of a, a bit too much of a strong word, I suppose. But um, he's definitely a guy who believes that games should be fun, and he enjoys you know the, the the fun factor of video games, which isn't something I'm particularly interested in as a critic. But I really I like reading his work because it is challenging, and it and it is the uh, opinion of somebody who's um, who's who's in the medium for the entertainment factor, I suppose.
1: Right. Actually, uh, you know, talking about Justin McElroy reminds me of someone who's now um, no longer part of the Games Press. He's got his own games company now, but, but Shane Bettenhausen over at 1UP. Mm. Uh, I always really enjoyed listening to him on the 1UP Yours podcast because uh, he has such a particular view of what a game should be. And... Um, you know that often means that uh, he has a very specific and uh, controversial outlook on on games, and often goes, it often went against the uh, the co-hosts of the show, like uh, like like Garnett Lee, and they often went came to blows. And I think that's maybe a whole a whole side of this which makes it interesting: the whole conflict between uh, you know everyone and 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 them. I guess you could say. You know, uh, I think that was what made you know the stories like, like Jim Studding's Deadly Premonition last year and, um, you know, uh, Tom Chick with, with Mass Effect 2, uh, that whole culture of them against uh, everyone else and uh, seeing how people get so vociferous when, when, when there's just one person who has a different opinion to them.
3: Um, there's another uh, one-upper, uh, used to be a one-upper, I believe he's actually gone from there now, I'm not sure what he's up to now, but a um, uh, man by the name of Scott Sharkey. What, uh, his his kind of opinions tended to be uh, driven by, or tend to be, I should say, driven by uh, other mediums and um, and by sort of uh, literary culture and that kind of thing, and that often brought a, a very different um, view to the world. In much the same way that Stephen Paul, for example, um, would you know discuss games, and that that was often. Very much at odds with 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 popular culture and popular ideas at the
2: time about games,
1: right? Sorry, Jeff. I think I think we, um, you were going to mention someone else as well.
2: Oh, I'm um, speaking down on the name, but whoever reviewed uh, Black Ops for PC Gamer, did any of you read that review?
1: No. I Can bring it up as as we talk. Okay. That's why i know who it was.
2: I I know his name on Twitter, or at least I know when I see it. But uh, it it was a fantastic review. It basically his summation was that it was like playing through a movie but not being told the script where you can't walk <laughs> ahead of the guy who's leading you and you can't walk too far out of where you're supposed to be and and it was it was hilarious too. He kept changing what he called the game from cod flops to shark limbs to cod flops. And,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you can always tell exactly
2: what he meant. It was it was really just one of the best reviews I've written in a long time.
1: Tom Francis is the is the name yes. of the gentleman. Um, I just had a quick look at, at all the different names in the review. It's very funny. Um, yes, so, okay, so so those are a few of the, the kind of people we're talking about. Let, let's be frank here and, and get this out of the way, because I'm sure there are some people who would argue that controversial reviewers like, like Jim Sterling, um, uh, like all the others we mentioned, are being controversial for the sake of being controversial. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, or is that is that short sighted even, and, and even if it is a fair assessment is it necessarily wrong to write from an unpopular angle knowing that it will spark some discussion um, what do you guys think
2: well I think a lot of it comes down to the the reviewers preferences
1: and whenever we get a really
2: big game like a Grand Theft Auto or a Halo we usually have somebody who's a fan of the series review them because they're the person who's going to be most knowledgeable about that particular title and I think as a result of that, we tend to see a lot of a lot more high scores. And I I guess I can work both ways, because sometimes if somebody's a really huge fan of the series, they hold up to a higher standard than everyone else. But by and large, I mean you look at a game like GTA 4 or Mass Effect 2, and games like that just get rave reviews across the board. And you know, they, they might be really good games, but I think that we all, at least in our personal lives, know at least some people who don't like these. But when you go on MetaCritic, you never see that um, that signified so much.
3: I think it's also quite; it can be quite a brave decision to go the opposite way to to popular thinking. I mean, I I know certainly you know in my writing, I whenever I kind of putting a review together, I and I'm sure you guys do uh, do too. I really have to um, question my my real beliefs and my real feelings, and, and look very much inwardly to how I feel about a game. Because you know, if you haven't, if you're in a position where you've got code before everybody else, and you're all working to an embargo date, for example, and nobody, you know, no one is saying exactly how they feel about it. It is your, you know, um, if you go one way and everybody else is going the other, you can end up in quite why a lot of, you know, bother with, um, with you know, comments and, and sort of, um, you know, trolling and that kind of thing. And, and um, you know, I certainly well, mentioned
1: been... PR as well. You know, that's, that, I mean, that, whilst obviously that shouldn't be a, a worry, in fact, none of the things you mentioned should be a worry, really. But, um, you know, PR, certainly, if you're the one person going against the grain, you can expect that email or your editor can expect that email <laughs> or that call from PR to say, uh, well, what's going on?
3: Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, you take hydrophobia, for example. That was a... I mean, the fact that the fact that sort of our medium is still in the position where a PR person can get in touch with somebody else and say, we don't think that that review was fair and we want you to re-review it. I mean, that is that is crazy. And, you know, it just shows how sort of infantile the medium is at the moment. But at the same time, I mean, to answer to answer your original question, I mean, wouldn't you rather read something that is completely at odds to everything else you've uh, everything else you've read you know I, again it's the reason that i i'm interested in jim sterling's work is because i don't necessarily agree with uh, everything that he says you know there's tons of things that he's you know brought up in um videos that he's created um he did uh, one recently um about a topic we were just talking about about um how games need to be fun um and i don't agree with him i don't i but at the same time, I'd rather watch uh, or read um, a piece of criticism and be challenged by that than watch something and just agree. Because if we're all agreeing, then we're all out of a job.
1: Right, and I think I think there's, there is a, a heck of a, lot of a lot of that in terms of how Jim Sterling is, I guess, responded to by by readers. Because you know, if you go read. A Jim Sterling review, it'll have as many people uh, hating on it as it will praising him, you know, if it's a particularly controversial review. And I think you know, I don't know if they, if they would admit it, I don't really want to tarnish them with a generalised brush and call them the haters, but I'm going to. Um, you know, I, I, I think that the haters enjoy coming to his reviews and hating as much as uh, the people who you know, respect his opinion or whatever because, like you said, there is it is more interesting to read uh, something that does go completely against what everyone else is saying, even if you are you're incensed by it, even if it angers you to read it, it's, it's it's you know at least it's producing a response in you.
3: Exactly, and I mean, you know, the the, the demographic that you're talking about these you know the, these trolls, haters, that kind of thing. You know, um, ultimately, it doesn't really matter what those people think because those people are gen- generally tend to be morons, and they're not really the people that you want. <laughs> Necessarily, it's not necessarily the people that you're writing to. If you are, if you're going out and writing to the kind of person that wants to see that the latest Call of Duty got a nine or got a ten, then fair enough. That's one, you know, that's one outlet. You can go to IGN, you can go to Gamespot, you know, and you can get that review. But if you're going to, you know, a blog that was started a couple of years ago and, and has somehow made it big through hard work and good quality writing. You know, you're going to end up with different opinions and that sort of thing. And and when you end up with you know a, a lot of negative criticism, you know, actually that just says that really the review worked because it sparked off a conversation and it, it it created it created um, you know dialogue between between gamers. And and that's that's the most important factor.
1: Right, um, Jeff, you mentioned Met- Metacritic. I just wanted to kind of touch quickly on that because I thought it was interesting what you said that. Uh, You know, you look on Metacritic and you you don't see that that spread of opinions that you may well see amongst your friends or you know people you talk to outside of the press. Do you think that Metacritic has a you know we often malign it as a tool, but as a tool has it revealed how you know really there is this census of opinion that isn't maybe as natural as what we would expect outside of the games press.
2: Um. Yeah, I think so. I remember Mitch Krapata had a really funny post at the end of last year called "The Year in Spooning," and it was you know a lot of it was a, a quiz where you had to match the some hyperbolic statement
1: to what game um, sort of be you know one. I thing love left. I love those posts. They're brilliant. <laughs> he does those regularly. they they're fantastic. So.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I I do think that that definitely happens. I think it was uh, Modern Warfare that a friend of mine played, the, the first Modern Warfare, and he, he's like, you know, I thought it was pretty good, but I went on, on Metacritic and, like, the lowest score there was a 9. And I'm like, there's no way that there's nobody out there who thought that it was less than a 9. So that definitely happens. I know it's something we're probably going to talk about later in the show, but Patrick Klepik had a really interesting statement about Metro 2033 saying that it was the victim of consumerist, was it consumerist reviewing. That yes, it? that's it.
1: Yeah, We're going to definitely touch on Metro 2033 later on in the, in the show, yeah.
2: I, I just feel like, um, going back to what Peter was saying about embargoes and, and all that, sometimes I have to review a game that's embargoed, and I feel like I've gotten to the point where I can just tell what kind of score something's going to get on, a, on Metacritic. With the general consensus will be. Like, like if the graphics are really polished and it works, I know it's going to be really high. If it looks kind of rough, no matter how good quality it is, I know it's not going to rise above, you know, low 80-something. It just kind of becomes very predictable after a while, what the general consensus will be. And I don't want to condemn the industry too much because the, there's a lot of really good writers, um, you know, in our industry that, that can think for themselves and all that. But also, Metacritic, Know it's bogged down by a lot of there's a very great range of quality in Metacritic, I'll put it that way. <laughs> kind of a lot of kind of up and coming fan sites, and you know, some of these people might have talent or maybe owning their skills, that's fine, but there's you know, a lot of those sites you can tell that some of the writers on there are just kind of cutting their teeth in writing and are really. You know, stoked about getting the review code, and are just kind of regurgitating the same style of review as Gamespot and IGN. Whereas even well,
1: I'm going to come in on you there because I feel like if I don't bring this up now, I'm sure listeners are screaming at at, at Alice. You know, this is the week when we've had all the Ferrari around uh, around, about Miller's review of Dead Space 2 on IGN and uh, how poor it was as a as a review. Yeah, and how I don't know, just so, uh, poorly written and, and so textbook, uh, a review it was, I don't know if either of you guys got the chance to, to read it, but it, you know, it almost, it, you did. Yeah.
3: Yeah. What did, uh, what did you
1: think? What did you guys think?
3: Um, sorry, you go, Jeff. I, I'm just trying to think of an apt amount of horrible words. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: um, yeah, it. It was dreadfully written. Although, one thing I did want to touch on is, is that as poorly rated as it was, it's just as much the editor's fault for writing it that way. There's so many things that they could have caught that, like, they could have, I mean, a review, a good reviewer will write a good review from the off. But even a poor reviewer made they're in a rush or whatever, they can, all they have time for is just to go over to the pertinent points what works, what doesn't work. And I can understand that if you're, you're in a pinch. But it should at least be competently. A good editor could at least take that and make it, you know, at the very least just, like, hit Control-F and see how many times they use the word cool or awesome. And, you know, <laughs> and, and change some of that. So, yeah, it was, that was sad.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that, That's actually the the first thing I tweeted after I read it was there's a difference between a a, a poor writer and a poor editor. And I feel like you know, I, I've, I as someone who's done who's edited a few pieces. This is going on a, a bit of a tangent, but as someone who's edited a few pieces, I know that there you could have someone who's what's the best way to describe it? Whose grammar isn't great, whose uh, spelling maybe might be sloppy, even though you've got spell check these days. But you know what I mean? Like they technically might not be fantastic, but the, the strength of the opinion mm. is there, and you just need an editor to cobble it together and make it you know look and read well and I feel like whilst maybe uh, Miller didn't have all that much to say it was quite clear that it hadn't been even looked at by an editor
3: yeah it was It was sad um, in so much as whatever process didn't happen to stop that going out as it was you know, whatever the issue, whatever the issue is, it did come across as my first games review, didn't it? Really, <laughs> um, it really did. And as far as I know about the guy, it might well be. You know, it's it's it, it was um, trash. But I mean, ultimately, if you're going to places like IGN uh, or, um, or or uh, let's say Metacritic or something like that to find out about video games, you know, you might as well equate that with you know finding out how good a plasma screen tv is through the argos catalogue you know it it it's it's there to make it is there to make money and fulfil a purpose and ultimately if we're going to go to those outlets you know then they're, they they des- they're not really designed for people like us they're not really designed for people who genuinely love the medium and want to see it grow they're there to you know Flame bait, basically, or or to agree with popular consensus and keep a, a forum and and keep getting st- uh, you know the hits and that kind of thing and the advertising revenue that comes with them. It's it, it's a shame, but you know they they exist for a reason and they 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 will remain where they are because they will continue to make money and people will continue to read it.
1: Right. I mean that's that's certainly one. Uh, it's inter- a. Well, not interpretation. I, I would, I'd think it's a stronger word than interpretation. But I think you know that's one interpretation of the scores that come from the big sites, and uh, you know, I, I, we talked about this on a previous review show. That certainly marketing and PR and all these things are going to be relevant, beyond relevant, maybe you know, <laughs> hugely influential. But I, I feel like, um, you know, there's, from what. Jim was saying, and from a few things that people have been talking about recently, uh, I end and uh, I feel like there's there's something deeper to to dig into, and I think that I, that's what we'll try and focus on, focus on in the show. And on that note, um, you know, Jim did talk about this. He he said there isn't such a thing. He doesn't feel like there's such a thing, but he, he mentioned the idea of a collective responsibility. To talk about smaller games, and um, you know. I, we we are in such a heavily marketed industry one that probably churns out more sequels and properties within single franchises than any of the other entertainment mediums Um, you know he he said that he didn't think there is such a thing or or he certainly didn't feel a a collective responsibility Um, but do you feel like maybe there is as a reviewer a a greater responsibility to not be influenced by uh, you know marketing or, or even your readership to some extent and to really try and weed out some of the smaller non-blockbuster titles from these bigger things because i don't know because because it is so busy and and there are so many games uh, you know is it is it too easy to to fall in line and just go well there are so many games now i'll just play dead space 2 because goodness sake you know <laughs> that that's the one that everyone else is um what do you guys think
2: well i think that if you're previewing a game if you're talking a game Prior to release, it makes more sense to do the bigger games because it's um, those are the ones you know people are going to be more interested in. Whereas I, I find a lot of sleeper hits really become popular after the fact. You know, games like Braid and Deadly Premonition nobody heard of leading up to release, and it was only after they started to come out and you know they got all these high reviews. Well, not so much in the case of Deadly Premonition, but they got some high reviews. Um, and that's what made everyone ratchet on to them. But I think it would have been really risky to have, you know, five hands-on previews of Deadly Premonition before it came out versus the new Tomb Raider, which I'm sure people are going to be talking about a lot prior to release. Because whether it's good or bad, it's something people, it's already on people's radar.
3: But it's also, you see, I, you See, I, I I put this this piece together uh, about um, uh, on um, a fantastic website uh, which uh, you should all check out called uh, Gamer and uh, we we did an interview with um, SCS Software, um, and they are makers of uh, Europe's leading truck simulator, and oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, and and I got I just got this urge one day to go and explore what it meant to create a truck simulator, and what the kind of working environment was, and, and who was making these things, and who was enjoying them. And um, I can tell you, hands down, that that was one of the most popular articles I have ever written. And we, I think there is this assumption that simply because... I think that there is assumption that it is only big games that people are interested in. The 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 thing the big hook for this interview that I did was the fact that UK truck simulator was coming out, you know, in uh, in in Europe. And uh, that was the hot new jam for uh, truck sim fans. And um and and the response we got was fantastic. It was incredible. Like all of these Eastern European countries, all all of these uh, users that would uh, you know, we got so many IPs from Poland and, um, and uh, the Ukraine and that kind of thing coming in that, um, that, was, that were kind of really excited to see an interview about this upcoming game that they were really genuinely passionate about. And I was talking to one of the guys who runs like the leading truck forum or something like that on the internet, um, and he says he's got something like 50,000 members. I mean when you're talking you know so when you're talking about when you're talking about like Tomb Raider Jeff like I completely agree with you like there is an inbuilt um there is an inbuilt fan base there because it's Tomb Raider and it's Lara Croft but at the same time I think that there is this this preconceived notion that there are that if we talk about smaller games or games that people aren't talking about then you know there isn't going to be the interest uh, did you guys read um uh what it? is it ship simulator extreme that the the, uh, the um, uh, review that they did over on um uh, on uh, rock paper shotgun did you read that
1: oh i heard about it
3: it was no, amazing no, yeah. it was amazing and he took this the i can 't remember the reviewer's name but he he took this this game that really no one cared about reviewed it and it was i mean like it ended up with like a whole bunch of comments and um so people are obviously attracted to these games and are very interested in them i just think that we're maybe games press is too caught up in in appealing to the you know uncharted 3 and and um and halo demographic
2: Oh, i I agree like i'm not saying that they shouldn't focus on smaller games but i just think that um that's one of the reasons that we always only see small games really get a lot of hype once they're actually in the player's hands so,
3: Jeff, would you say it was like um? Would you say it was a, a shortcut to uh, hits and popularity, essentially?
2: Oh, um, getting a lot of coverage by the release.
3: Well, like what, what I'm trying to say is, do you think that it's do you think that it is easier for an outlet to write about a big name oh. release than and and get traffic for it, which ultimately is the aim of the game? I mean, you know, let's not kid anybody. Um, right. or uh, than talk about a smaller game. Do you think that that's, that's it? or
2: um, You know, I did, but you bring up a really good point, actually, especially, yeah, I'm probably going to double back my earlier saving now. I mean, if everyone's reviewing, or excuse me, everyone's previewing Mass Effect 3, then you, you might be right that if a site, um, like I said, might still want to preview it out, but if they find a game that no other place is previewed, maybe they can put it on people's radar. So, um I retract my earlier statement. that.
3: <laughs> oh no, I feel bad now.
1: Feel you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> well, what, what I'd like to point out is I think, um, and I think this ties in key, key to what really is the original topic, you know, the idea of, of smaller games uh, and critically maligned games, because I think we've seen a lot of what you're talking about, Peter, with indie games. There has been a real upsurge in recent years in the coverage of indie games, you know, a lot more indie websites in particular and, uh, you know previews, even like you're saying, Jeff. Um, you know usually it's just reviews, but we're starting, to, we're starting to see previews of of you know titles by one person in his bedroom, essentially, um, or you know some tiny Scandinavian studio, whatever. Um, because we've seen a lot of quality indie titles in recent years, games like uh, like Braid and Limbo, and we could you know re- I could reel off a whole list of them. Um, I think it's the games. In the middle and in the middle is probably the wrong term, but it's it's the less fashionable games which are very quickly cast aside, things like deadly premonition like uh, alpha protocol like um even to some extent demon souls because you know what the hell is demon souls this Japanese game from you know uh studio no one's ever heard of and. Incredibly difficult to even get into, so it's almost it's 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 easy to um dismiss those games but you can get it's easy to get excited about the you know this one man in his bedroom making this crazy game that you know where you play as a flower or you play as whatever you know something which is really unique and different um it's it's the middle of the road games that I think are the ones that suffer the most
3: well, I mean it basically killed bizarre creations didn't it
1: yes very sadly um you know, uh, I, I actually visited them um, not long before they they um, well had their closure, which I think has been protracted. I'm not even entirely 100% sure if it's 100% happened yet. Um, but yeah, you know they they had a they had a rough a rough time with Activision and the games they handed to them, and you know making something out of this James Bond game and uh, and blur was always going to be difficult. And I think a lot of studios have suffered because they've got games which just you know maybe they're not they've, they've not got a blockbuster support so how do you make them interesting in a preview stage even if they might turn out to actually be quite good games because there's something deeper within and I know this is something which um, a lot of people have been started to talk about again recently um, you know Michael Abbott over at the Brainy Gamer talked about Metro 2033 which you mentioned earlier Jeff and I know the Digital Cowboys have just done a show about the pressure to play the biggest games in, in the recent podcast. But anyway, getting back to, to Michael, he talks about um, you know, it's in terms of metacritic and measuring a game's value on its technical or face value design. And I think that's like to me, I think that's a really key statement. I think that's the kind of thing that puts us off a game like Alpha Protocol or Deadly Premonition. You know, I'm I'm just playing Alpha Protocol right now and uh, I've heard a lot of people tell me that you know there's a lot of good things going on in the narrative. I'm finding it so hard to get past how terrible the controls are, how awful the graphics are, how, um, you know, generally, last gen it, it really feels. And I kind of am annoyed at myself for that, as much as the game, you know. I know Obsidian should have done a better job, but I feel very superficial for getting annoyed at things which maybe shouldn't prohibit me from enjoying the game on, on a deeper level. Um do you think that's a, that's a a problem that affects the games press?
2: Um, I think that's a a huge problem. I mean, as I was alluding to earlier, I can kind of tell what what sort of score a game is going to get on Metacritic because we know, like, if a game doesn't have amazing graphics, no matter how good it is, like, you never see a game with with shoddy graphics get above a, nine, a ninety on Metacritic. Um, and sorry, doubling back on something you. We're talking about earlier about games that were overlooked. The, the first studio that came to my mind was Clover, mm. right after they released so *Okami* and *God Hand*, which I think were two of the absolute best games ever on PS2. Agreed. Yeah. And neither of them were marketed that well. And I, I think it's like it's shocking that they both did so well. which was very much in the vein of *Zelda*, which, you know, sells by the bucket loads, and in a lot of ways better. I thought, and it. I mean, they are making a sequel of sorts on the DS, but um, it never really caught on that much. And same with God Hand, and I think God Hand is one of the best 3D brawlers I've ever played, but it it just had poor graphics, and it, it was a budget game It was released here for, for $30 at retail. Um, the fun release, and I just think that those things killed it. People had this stigma about a game that wasn't a, a full-priced, cutting-edge blockbuster no matter how good it actually was to play,
1: Hey. Ready? Three.
3: more than just a collection of great gaming podcasts, it's more than just a large community of smart friendly gamers, it's more than your average gaming experience, whatever you get from your current gaming experience,
0: get more.
1: Listen. At the moment, I'm playing Dead Space 2, uh, which, you know, I think is, is very good, um, and it's certainly an improvement on the first game. But uh, in terms of what to say about it, it is very similar to the first game, and, um, excuse me, it, uh, I think it does a, a few more interesting things in how it presents uh the kind of more hallucinatory sinister side of of uh of dead space and in the set pieces it's got a few interesting things going on but i i find myself naturally wanting to counterbalance it against mirror's edge which didn't get the sequel and i feel like that's because mirror's edge was just this unfashionable game because it's you know it's trying to be a first person adventure and it's trying to be so different and um you know, it's got this female Eurasian protagonist. It has all these things going against it. And, you know, people talk about how Mirror's Edge didn't really sell. Well, Dead Space didn't really sell either. But, uh, you know, you could you look at the two games, which one's the safer the safer bet? Well, Dead Space is the safer bet. But which one could have had the potential to be, you know, game of, of the, this generation? Mirror's Edge 2, by a, a, a distance. There's so much to talk about in Mirror's Edge. There's so much it's, it's doing different, and that's interesting. But um, I feel like you know as much as it's the games press and how they respond to to games you have to look at games companies and whether they're prepared to to back these more interesting games and i guess um you know maybe with the smaller studios you there's more chance of getting a game like uh like you say clover or Kami because well, they can't do a mass effect 2. they can't do a a dead space or whatever because they it, they can't compete against the bigger games um i don't yeah. know
3: can I um can I just quickly pull you up on uh, pull you up on something? Um first of all you said that uh Mirror's Edge didn't get a sequel and it's hasn't yet got a sequel because if you say that it, it won't ever, I might I might just top myself now because it, you know, <laughs> there's no point in going on. Um
1: I, I quite agree.
3: <laughs> you know, uh, yes, I, I, I that's one of that is, you know, one of my favourite games of all time. Um and but as you were saying i it, it's i think it's something to do with the fact that between somewhere between companies and um you know journalism uh, in inverted commerce um there is this there is still this immaturity within within the format that um that as, as Jeff was talking about if a game doesn't look absolutely stunning in 1080p then it's it's never going to get a Beyond a certain, um, beyond a certain level, you know, it's uh, it's that old sort of glass ceiling kind of thing. And if we then compare the medium with, um, you know, with film, you know, to to for once, um, it's it's strange that in you know, over a decade ago, we had a film like The Blair Witch Project, which you look at that, and the cinematography is terrible, and it is. You know, if if you want to compare the actual way that that is that is filmed, it is awful. You know, um, the acting really isn't that fantastic, but there is some seed of brilliance in there that made it incredibly popular, and you know, span out two pretty crap sequels, but made it a load of money. But we still haven't. I I would argue we 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 still aren't in the position where we can do that. We aren't in a position in video games where we can have our Hammer horrors. You know, like Deadly Premonitions is is the nearest thing that we've got to a Blair Witch project because it is exceptionally rough around the edges, but there is this seed of 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 brilliance within it. And and you know, I mean, as uh, you know, the the thing I suppose we have to remember is video games are only what forty years old, and uh, you know, it it took it took cinema, I think it was thirty years just to have speech in films. Yeah, so so I, I guess we 're kind of at this weird point where we are starting to see amazing games that are not really games they 're more sort of interactive experiences that we can um, you know talk about on a higher level but but we aren 't at a point where they 're going to sell well
1: I think that 's a really important point because you know jim he he mentioned like how much of a hit games like Deadly Premonition and Demon's Souls are. And I agree, relative to what we expected of those games, they were hits. But relative to what hits actually are in the industry, they weren't hits. You know, Demon's Souls sold uh, 500,000 worldwide, probably now up to a million. But that's, in a greater scheme of things, you know, Grand Theft Auto sells 100 bajillion or whatever, you know, <laughs> every time it comes out. Um uh, Daily Edition maybe sold a few hundred thousand. It, it's great to see. It's And, you know, obviously fantastic for the developer and publisher involved. Uh, but, like, you know, Blair Witch Project is a great example because that was huge. That was absolutely huge. Um, and we're not going to, you know, that that just doesn't happen in video games. I don't think any of these small titles get propelled to the to the front of the class. Angry Birds. It's probably the closest
2: I could think to it's small So that just, that's, um, a,
1: that's a fair point. Do you think on, on, on something which is a growing medium like the iPhone, there's more more chance for something like that to happen?
2: I don't know. I'm just baffled by the success of Angry Birds. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't have I feel nice. like we could do a whole podcast on that. You know, of, <laughs> it succeeded. It's not that or
2: anything. I'm just like surprised that it's become this huge cultural phenomenon, and maybe because it appeals to to non gamers too. But it's, I mean, the-
3: it's because if you think about where all of the um if you know if we go back like, like let's say 20 25 years into in, into the art form we're looking at um titles that were created by three guys in a basement and we had this we, we had this period of time where uh, in the sort of late PlayStation 2 early uh, current generation console um you know time span um where it, it was only big teams that were making games. And now with the rise of XBLA, with the rise of the iPhone and Android platforms, you know, that kind of thing, we're back to a situation where two guys can get together, create a game, and it can sell like absolute gangbusters. If you look, uh, the, have you guys played Tilt to Live on the iPhone?
1: I don't even have an iPhone, sadly. Uh, ah, I don't have an I, I know, I know. You are, that's my 2011 aim is to get are, an iPhone. You
3: are missing out. As soon as you, as soon as you get 400 quid's worth of phone, get 59 pence worth of Tilt to Live. Um, <laughs> it is. It, it, it's a fantastic little, um, fantastic little um, kind of a little bit like Geometry Wars, I suppose. Um, but it, but it, uh, it's a a really cool skew on it. But um, that's 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 a small team. I think it's two or three people, and and that's where the the real furtive grounds are it's where it isn't 200 people working on assassin's creed where there's a couple of people nearer the top making decisions to make everybody else happy it's two or three people in a very confined space in a very short amount of time coming up with a concept creating it and if it works then brilliant if it doesn't then who cares because they haven't spent you know uh, what was it they spent on red dead was it like 20 million or 100
1: million uh, dollars or something crazy you see that that
3: is that is creeping into doctor evil territory <laughs> <laughs> you know like yeah, and it's absurd but we are in this wonderful time right now where where we do have smaller platforms and they can they don't have to be super high budget releases for them to be successful so you've got angry birds and you've got things like minecraft
1: and, you know, all the Facebook games, you know, as much as they may not be fashionable to talk about in something like, you know, uh, the more kind of core gaming area, you know. but it's it's stuff like uh, like Farmville, which is doing crazy yeah. money. So there's, there's certainly something in there, you know, uh, in terms of what a digital platform can do for the smaller developer because, you know, it does give them that equal footing. Uh, it's harder to, you know, really push marketing as hard as you can in terms of, you know, pushing something ahead of something else because, you know, you go into a game store and there's right in front of you Gran Turismo 5 on the front shelf, like, 30 copies of it. Maybe if you you dig around the back, you might find Deadly Premonition hiding behind (laughs) (laughs) a a used copy of Mass Effect 2 or something. Uh, Not not anymore, of course. But, um, you know, uh, if you go onto XBLA or you go onto PSN, uh, there's only so much you can push these... Big games ahead of the smaller games. Eventually, you know, people just can cycle through, and they'll find this this game, and people there'll be reviews next to it saying, you know, oh, everyone thinks it's a five star game, and it will be. I think as well, the price becomes a bigger factor as well. You know, it's noticeably cheaper than something like you know, say on the iPhone, Assassin's Creed, which costs I think uh, a few pounds compared to, like you're saying, uh, you know, till to live fifty nine p. I feel like it's that that really highlights the contrast and makes you think well what's 59p um, so it's all these factors which I think I agree with you is making the digital realm a more exciting and furtive uh, place for smaller developers and smaller games and maybe that's getting that we're seeing some of that start to transfer through into to gaming as a whole is that is that a fair statement
2: I would say so I mean this year was probably the best year for digital games ever Granted, digital games have only really been a huge part of the gaming market for a few years, but um, there were so many good games on like XBLA and PSN throughout twenty ten.
1: Right. Um, so I feel like we should we should probably close. I think. Um, what question should we end on?
2: Well, I'm do we do we think? Oh, sorry, you go. I'm just what You're saying earlier. I think that you're right that the XBLA games and. Digital downloads can be highlighted. The problem is is marketing. Like when it comes to a game, as much as I like the creativity that we're getting these smaller games, it does kinda of sadden me that we're not gonna see that many big budget, interesting games anymore. Games like Okami, um they're they're kinda of rare these days. Do you guys feel the same way that big budget games are becoming more and more homogenized? What you mean like
3: Call of Honor, modern shooter, yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: I'm looking forward to that game. Oh, I know, just... know
2: that Google Legends bombed and May wasn't as good as I expected and I think that Double Fine will eventually do another con- like, full console game. And you know, I like that they're doing these small digital games, but there's another part of me that's kind of like you know, I kind of want another you know, AAA or Double A Double Fine game, somebody in that market doing something unique.
1: Well, I think you just have to. I don't mean to bring it up again, but you do have to just look at how EA's recent strategy on trying things different went. Not so well. Um, You know, and uh, so when the biggest name in town tries it and fails, is there much hope for anyone else who's got the budget to really do it? Um, I think the best we can hope is that, uh, from a realistic perspective, is that they'll take more risks with established IPs. Um, I feel like. EA are starting to do that um, a bit more, you know. As much as I kind of belittle Dead Space two, even though I do think it is a very good game, it is it, it, you know, it's trying a few things here and there. It's got a, it's taking a few risks, uh, not huge risks, but some things. And you know, I feel like um, hopefully we'll just see a bit more ingenuity in some of the the big games. And you know, in fairness, like you do, we've been listening Call of Duty. It took a huge risk in Modern Warfare two. With that uh, sequence with the no Russian thing, that could have completely backfired, and you could argue in a big way it did. Um, so I feel like it, it's easy to pick on the the big developers. Maybe the point is that, as you know, to bring it back to Gazepress, Press, we've got to really pick up on these uh, sort of more, excuse me, um, interesting, newer, exciting things, and not get mired in the same old well. Sequel, 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 sequel thing. Uh, what's new? What, what, you know, what's what's bigger, better, more. To use that cliffy B phrase, bigger, better, and more badass about this game. That I feel like that's the biggest problem with the games press. We we, res- we respond so positively to bigger, better, and more badass when we, we should we should be responding to what's this? I don't know what it is. Let's find out.
3: But I, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to end things on like a, a particularly pessimistic note. But I get the feeling I might. Um, Let's say um, uh, uh, fine art, for example, like paintings, um, if you think about – or photography, actually, much better um, – the kind of photography that is, you know, genuinely groundbreaking and that is, you know, um, trying, th- you know trying new things that, you know, 50 years down the line might, might get pulled in in some way into, you know, mainstream photography – is incredibly, you know, infinitely small in comparison to when you walk into an Ikea and you purchase a picture for your living room. You know, that's the kind of art that sells. And ultimately, it is, it is a, a sort of um, based common denominator which tends to signify the way in which art moves. And you have these small... Um, experiments and these sort of internal struggles within a format but ultimately it is what is popular that will, you know, come to determine where the the art form moves so I think that I think that all of the experimentation is absolutely fantastic but ultimately it's almost like we kind of have to think, well we are going to have more Call of Duties and we are going to have more you know, Dead Space three and four and that sort of thing because they are popular and that is what f- goes to fund you know the company and that sort of thing and so that they can create an experiment with new technology and that sort of thing and we, we saw it with you know mirror's edge for example you know battlefield basically paid for mirror's edge and um, and that's fantastic and they've never you know unfortunately it was an experiment that f- failed up until now until when the sequel comes out and, uh, you know, uh, but it is those big games like Battlefield that I have literally no interest in that go to create these smaller, more radical titles.
1: Right. And I, I don't think that is a pessimistic note at all. I think that um, it's... To bring it all back to game's press, it, it is, I think, that you look at things like the blogosphere and how much more that's becoming uh, an impact... Uh, on how games are received. If you look at what Jim Sterling did for you know as, as much as i you said it's relative. If you look at what he did for Deadly Premonition with one article, and uh, that, I think that's great. Even if the game may not necessarily feel that good, um, it's great that there's still the impact one guy can have who isn't willing to do the same that everyone else is, um, and I think that's maybe that's that's the the good note to end on. Um actually I'll I'll go with one more good note to end on. What let's let's end with a few recommendations end because there's something I wanted to do earlier in the show and have really got around to it. Some of the games just very quickly kind of reeled them off. Some of the games that you feel maybe haven't been given you mentioned Godhand Jeff as a and Akami. Are there any more that you'd like listeners, if they get the chance, to check out?
2: Um, see so we've already discussed that we and near to death.
1: Um We're doing a whole show on near next month. Ooh. yes yes we are um oh god. god just to, just to kind of show that we are actually living up to what we're saying we're practicing oh so, um is. i just played elo milo um
2: i reviewed that earlier this month and it was the first five star review i did you g4 so i i really loved you milo that's one people that's an
1: XBLA like that. game isn't it
2: uh yeah XBLA. um i like tales monkey island a lot that's not especially new, but it, I don't know how well it did. But it's it's great. So I played it on PSN, which I think is probably the best way to do it. Um, get back to me in a minute. There's there's a ton.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get, we'll we'll come back to you in the, in the plugs, I guess. Okay, how about you, uh, Peter? Any any that come to mind for us yeah. to go check out?
3: Yeah, there's a, a, a you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch. I mean, I, I would say um, if if you like. Um, uh, weird experimental adventure games um, the DS title um, Flower, Sun and Rain by uh, Goichi Suda um, is absolutely fantastic and if you thought that No More Heroes was strange I mean, it takes it in a completely different direction a very different weird to Killer7 but um, weird nonetheless um, and I would say uh, uh I recently played um, Trackmania on the Wii, and uh, I haven't talked to anybody who knew that came out, which was uh, a little bit disappointing. I, I would recommend that. Um, and in terms of... Oh, one final one. Um, if you can import it, because I, I'm not sure... Uh, I, actually, I, Jeff, do you know if it came out in America? Um, Africa?
2: Um, it did not, but it's import-friendly.
3: Yeah. Um, I, would rec- I would thoroughly recommend... Um, Africa, or Hakuna Matata. I think that's the English language version. Um, that is amazing. Uh, that's, a, that's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful game that never came out over here, and that was you know a, a, a huge issue, and why unfortunately it went kind of undiscovered by, by our sort of global gaming press, but a bit of a shame. Do you think Tokyo Jungle
2: will do any better?
3: Uh, which one? What's this?
2: That's the, the new game from the creators of Africa. Side scrolling game about various animals fighting in Tokyo.
1: What's wow. a bit of a departure, isn't it? From yeah, the it's
2: last like, one, it's a pinnacle, <laughs> it, so it's just like it's like 12 monkey style, just a bunch of animals in Tokyo. But it, I think it's going to be a PSN game, um, it's going to be a digital download. But it honestly, the, the premise is brilliant, the little bit of footage I've seen. Didn't look that great, but you know it was very early footage from Tokyo Game Show. I'm still sold on the idea.
1: Sounds good to me. I don't know about anyone else, but it sounds—I I love, I love the idea. That's ridiculous. Um, I—I'll well, I'll close it for you then. Um, I, I don't know for me for something we talked about on, on this show and i think i've talked about on other shows but i feel like wee titles have been really overlooked in recent years um stuff like muro muro masa the Demon blade which is a really just plain beautiful game <laughs> to to play a uh, little king story i've i've haven't got as far as i'd like to in it but it's just charming and uh very very enjoyable um you know, funnily enough, uh, Dead Space Extraction. I know that's maybe not a, a bit of an odd one to say because it's Dead Space, but, you know, it didn't really get played. And I think, uh, you know what, quietly it might be just as good as the first Dead Space. And and actually you can see a lot of its influence on Dead Space too. Um Which, uh, you know, yeah, fair enough. What well, I will say is, you know, Brad Galloway is a big fan of Alpha Protocol. Well, not a big fan, I think he, that's that overdoing. But he says he can see the good in Alpha Protocol. I've got to say, I can't see the good in Alpha Protocol. I think it's rubbish. But, um, you know, it's it's certainly different. So you should try Alpha Protocol as well on, on 360 PS3. Right. Uh, excuse my nasalness, um, but uh, you'll be glad to know you don't have to hear it much longer because I'm about to close out the show. So I will uh, extend my very uh, profound thanks to Mr. Jeffrey Metler. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. By the way, I remember the other games. (laughs) Thank you for for reminding me about the Wii, because Silent Hill Shattered Memories was one of my absolute favorite games in the last few years, and I think it sold very poorly, and everyone should check it out. Um, Also, both Lost Wins games on WiiWare.
1: Yes, 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 definitely. And in honor of Brad Galloway,
2: Bionic Commando. (laughs) <laughs> he sold me out that, and it was way better than I expected it to be. It's become really one of my favourite action games in the last few years, and any time I play a third-person shooter that doesn't have a, a grappling arm, I'm disappointed.
1: I saw someone nonchalantly describe it as a bad game the other day on Twitter, and it just annoyed me, because you know it's not the most amazing game for certain, but I can't see how you'd say it's bad. That really irked me, because it's very difficult. What's there to really criticise about it beyond some like, a couple of design flaws?
2: Yeah, the the story's and the name of the character and all that's terrible. But uh, it just has a bit of a learning curve. Like I didn't really like it that much for the first few hours. But once I really like got into swinging and using my arm in conjunction with weapons, like it just had such an original flavor to it, and it's it's really really good. So it's a shame it's all veteran. It's it's dirt cheap now. You can find this for you know five ten bucks. Yes, and
1: you should buy it in order of the studio who unfortunately closed uh making it. You know, that's, that's something to figure out. Yeah.
2: Um, a lot of people on it though are working at we've that Shark is the studio, the one making the new Bionic Mando, so
1: Yes. Um at least. Yeah. Uh and actually if you if you want to go back in our archives and look for a cart mode where we discussed it myself and Joe, um I just remember what the other big criticism actually is of Bionic Mando, the protagonist is a complete jerk off. But, um, you know, <laughs> that
2: that. Of, I that. I that game. I didn't play it until, like, a year and a half after it came out or something. So,
1: Well, that's the other big thing, isn't it, which we haven't really touched on, and uh, we haven't really got time to. But that's the, the the whole culture of play it now, play it now, play it now. And, uh, you know, that means that you don't have time to go back and play some of the titles you missed, and then eventually the... the You know, does that pressure to play all the big games in a year? But I think, uh, in fairness, if you want to excuse me, if you want to hear more on that topic in particular, I think the recent. Digital Cowboys show covers it pretty well. I haven't yet listened, but from the show description, I think that that's what they're talking about in, the, in that show. So check them out at the Digital I will eventually now thank you. Uh, pass on my thanks to Mister Peter Willington of the Invert Respect podcast for the interview he did with Jeff with uh, with Jim Stelling as well as coming on the show. Thank you so much.
3: It's been absolutely brilliant, absolutely amazing. So I'm um, glad. thank you for having me on. Letting me come and um, talk too much.
1: No, you, we, you you surely did not talk enough and we'll make sure that we get you to talk even more in a future show if you are so... Foolish enough to take us up on the offer. Well, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> uh, before we let you go, um, and then I'll go back to Jeff as well to get some plugs for him. But we would love to hear about um, in retrospect. Um, I don't know if it, listen, many of our listeners know about it, but it's a fantastic show. So please tell us all about it.
3: Okay, um, so in retrospect, podcast dot com is uh, a uh, a podcast label, I suppose you'd call it, and um, it's got me talking uh, with um, uh, my good colleagues Marconi Strider. Uh, and uh, mr dan frost and um we all basically kind of produce individual podcasts so you get a lot of very different stuff um and then we all come together and we have a chat on something called free play which is all about all of the gaming that you can do for free um we uh, yeah we just try and do sort of um we just try and emulate Big Red Potion, basically. We just try and be <laughs> as intelligent as possible, and um, and um, and hopefully so you're talk not emulating Big Red
2: Potion.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to say it, but uh, no, um, but uh, yeah. So we just try and be intelligent and do, you know, weird and and new things with games, and um, and uh, and then sometimes we get to come and talk to you guys. So
1: it's quite nice. <laughs> I love it when we we, because we have we do you know we're friends with a lot of similar shows and we you know we've got a few inevitables of we're very similar to you guys and it's that kind of thing yeah but you guys are better than us don't say that be quiet shush don't say you're like us um so um but no you guys have done like a a fantastic uh yeah, well, retrospective on on the Metal Gear Solid series, which I can only recommend. You've just released the fourth one, is that right?
3: Yeah, just just released the fourth one. Um, we're going to release our roundtable, kind of just discussing um, uh, the series as a whole, like its hallmarks, that kind of thing. But um, each of us um, took uh, separate games in the entri- uh, se- separate entries in the franchise, and did something weird with them. So. Um, just to give your listeners an idea um mgs3 uh we had our phd psychogeography student talk about how um talk about the the landscape of um of metal gear so if you're interested in how uh the environment actually shapes snake and uh, you know what it what it sort of subconsciously means then that's kind of that's kind of the weird stuff that we do so
1: <laughs> that's brilliant I, I've got to admit, I read a psychogeography blog, and it's one of the most bizarre things I read. Um, but it's it's fascinating stuff. Uh, so yes, inretrospectpodcast dot and you guys are on Twitter with. I just I, I I don't mean to plug that for you because I just love the Twitter name you guys have chosen. So please uh, share share it with all. <laughs> yes, the
3: world. you can find us on at in re, well at in uh, which is uh, <laughs> very clever. But um, obviously, you won't find us. You'll find the in retrospect gremlin. Which is uh, none of us unfortunately, it's um some small little green monster that decided that he would uh be a part of games journalism, and sometimes he gets a little bit offensive, so uh he's a bit jealous He's a little bit jealous, um but um we do we do keep him at bay most of the time, so you should follow him as well uh. There you go um,
1: <laughs> right, and before we go, Jeff, uh you've probably been a very busy man so tell us all about your busyness Oh
2: um. Yeah, I just reviewed Spare Parts and Dot Clock for G4. I don't believe they're up yet, but they should be any day now, possibly by the time that this podcast is up. Um, I'm in the middle of reviewing Two Worlds 2 for Paste, and I also reviewed Ghost Trick there. Good um, stuff. Yeah, I've also got something going up on Eurogamer soon, a feature, so keep your eyes peeled for that.
1: Very good. Um, I'll be very quick with my personal plug. I'm what well we, we, we do our last podcast then uh before yeah, it was in two thousand ten. So since then I've been taking part in the One A Day Project, which um is a collective of bloggers writing an entry every single day. Um not everyone's writing an entry every single day, some people are doing it weekly, some people are doing it when they want, but yours truly has been stupid enough to subscribe to the idea of writing an entry every single day and all the pitfalls and challenges and a painful rubbish post have been produced so far in just uh, 28 or 29 days. Um, But if you do want to to read up on my daily Witterings, you can find me at com and links to all the stuff I'm doing is there, I'm doing a review of something I can't yet mention for Play.tm, but if you know your release schedule, you might be able to guess. Otherwise, um, yeah, uh, you can find... Our friends at unifiedgamersnetwork.com Such fine fellows as GamerDork, the most popular girls on the internet The Digital Cowboys, the Ninja Fat Pigeons And Game Burst uh, You can also find our Sponsory type uh, Bedfellows who are Gamingode At GamerNode.com. Um, We, I should say a hello to one missing Uh I guess missions... Min, I've lost the ability to speak. Our, miss, our, our missing men in action, that's it. Uh, who are Joe D'Elia and Eddie Gazzato and Zanteriad who will all be joining us in one form or another in the next month. Uh, and finally, you can find us on Twitter twitter.com slash Big Red Potion. You can find us on Facebook if you search for Big Red Potion. You can find us on iTunes if you search for Big Red Potion. And we have a website which is bigredpotion.com My name has been Sarah These have been Peter Williston and Jeffrey Matleff and... I'm going to go take some kind of nasal spray and see you in a month's time. Bye for now.